0: today is someone we have wanted to have on this podcast right from the beginning, but it has taken us over 25 episodes before we could get him. So we are absolutely thrilled to have Mark Stump, formerly of Arnold and Porter, uh, joining us today. Mark is a legendary sovereign debt lawyer who we met very early in our careers when we were beginning research on sovereign debt and needed to learn the basics. And our good friend, Lee Bukait, the guru of sovereign debt said there were a handful of people who would be kind and generous enough to help us learn the basics. And Mark was that for us many years ago, and in fact has continued to be a generous friend to us and our students for now over a decade. Uh, So we are so thrilled to have him here today. So welcome Mark. Thank you. And thank you for that very generous introduction. Not at all. Uh, it's not generous enough. But let me uh, get directly into the substance. Mark, you have a wonderful new paper in the works that takes on a recent position paper by, from the IMF on sovereign contingent uh, debt instruments. And you in particular are critical of their approach to value recovery instruments. So I'm wondering if you might uh, start us off by telling us what these value recovery instrument creatures are and why you're interested in them. And then maybe we can get to why the IMF paper sort of irritated you. Sure. Well, the
1: concept of value recovery is, a, is quite an old concept. Uh, and it certainly has an important place in uh, sovereign finance. Value recovery, occurs when the creditors are asked to take a haircut on their debt, but there are prospects that the debtor's uh, uh, situation can improve over time, and that because the creditors have taken this hit on their debt, uh, they may be able to recoup some of that loss, and in fact, may have been in some respects responsible for the for the positive turn of events so uh, there is definitely a place for these concepts what happened was that the concept of value recovery got wrapped up in the brady plan in the in the late 80s uh, 1990s and that's where things started to go sideways and The reason for that is the essence of the Brady plan was to take commercial bank debt and convert it into tradable bonds. If you add a value recovery concept to a tradable bond, the value recovery concept then also became tradable. And there was the idea that you ought to be able to separate the value recovery instrument uh, from from the bond. So the value recovery uh, instruments started to trade separately from the bond. The problem is nobody knew how to value it. Uh, It traded all over the the map, but generally speaking at the outset traded quite poorly because they were set in in an out of the money uh, uh, fashion given the fact that uh, the, the country had was in a, a negative position. Um, and then, because they are very long dated instruments, people kind of forgot that they had them. They didn't sit well with the institutions. And then after years and years, uh, they suddenly went positive and started paying, but those institutions no longer held them because they either sold them inadvertently with the bonds still attached or they sold them to uh, out into the market at a low price. Meanwhile, uh, there are traders and in particular, traders who are in country, who are hyper aware of these instruments and can accumulate them at a low price and reap the benefits of them when they go positive. In the worst case, those uh, individuals may be within the government and can influence the trajectory of these instruments. For example, uh, dictating that the government should not repurchase them at a low price, or in the very worst case, manipulating the the criteria by which uh, payments are to be made.
2: So so Mark can Mark, I can I interject for just a second there to absolutely. just to follow up on that point. So one of the things that struck me in your your paper is the proposal that there should be a bias against transferability for these instruments, which is and part of what I hear you saying now is that there are all kinds of maybe unexpected or certainly undesirable arbitrage opportunities that get created. And so your proposal in a way is that is diametrically opposed to the IMFs, which is all about transferability. So can, can you, just to kind of get to the heart of it, what, what is it about the focus on transferability in particular that captured your interest? And why did you think the fund's approach was wrong?
1: The fund's basic thesis is that these instruments don't trade well because they're too complicated, too idiosyncratic, uh, and they're not standardized. And uh, my response to that is, you can simplify things all you want, but the sovereign issuer is never simple. There are always uh, complexities. I cite in the paper, uh, the Venezuela oil index payment obligation, which to my mind is about as simple a, uh, an instrument as you could get, you know, if, if oil goes above a certain price, uh, you pay up to a cap. But that instrument hardly took account of the fact that, you know, that's why I went through tremendous uh, political upheavals. Uh, the oil company was converted to a social service uh, organization. And uh, there was, you know, sanctions issued and the like. It was the subject of enormous variations and complexities, which hardly can be captured by a simple, straightforward um, instrument. So in any event, the creditor who originally received the instrument isn't getting the benefit of uh, the the upside of this instrument unless they hold it for a very long time, which they didn't do. They said they were tempted to just sell it out and get, get rid of it. Um, so my proposal to deal with that situation is to have a bias against transferability and toward a more complex instrument that can, can address these various uh, potential outcomes to maximize the actual value of the instrument and I, do you
2: do yeah you, go ahead. Uh, sorry do you think do you think so that's the other the follow-on point which is that once you take the the transferability away then your argument again contrary to the the fund's position is rather than have a simple standardized instrument then you can embrace complexity and i and i wanted to I'm going to just present this more skeptically than I am. I'm, I'm actually not that skeptical. But the skeptics view might be that even if we're thinking about what is essentially a bilateral instrument, do you? how confident are you that complexity is going to be a source of efficiency and um, sort of optimal incentives rather than a pitfall for the unwary. I, I mean, it seems to me that we would not expect drafters to be any more precise in this context than in the context where they're trying to draft a tradable instrument. So, so why are you um, confident that complexity will be value additive here?
1: Well, it's, it's never gonna be perfect, but uh, I cite in the paper, a couple of examples. Uh, taking again an oil warrant, suppose uh, the sovereign sells a piece of its oil company, Uh, you know, Saudi Aramco, for example, Uh, suppose it pre-sells a bunch of its oil in order to uh, raise financing. A standard instrument is not going to pick up those one-off events. And so uh, if you have a bespoke document, you can capture more value by foreseeing and fast forwarding, if you will, the receipt to the holder of, of those events. That's, so that's one example. Another example, if you take for the uh, Ukraine GDP warrant, which is a, a, you know, a, a freestanding tradable instrument, can you be more nuanced about uh, what is GDP in Ukraine given the, the territorial uh, losses, Crimea and the, the various uh, autonomous regions? How do, you, how do you give an adequately nuanced definition of, of GDP going forward given, given a, a territory that is uncertain in its in its scope. So those are those are examples of how a very simplified document may not capture uh, the upside for the creditor or you know, the downside, frankly, for the debtor.
0: Mark, uh, um, may, may I uh, interrupt you, please, here? Because I, I'm I'm wondering whether some of the disagreement stems from the very different uh, perspectives that you and uh, the IMF staff might be taking on this. And, and of course, when I say IMF staff, I mean, there are thousands of people in that building with divergent views. So. But my sense is that from real world practice, which of course you know so well, these value recovery instruments largely have shown up only in the restructuring context. I was just reading something uh, today about how, in the Puerto Rican negotiations, they've included a value recovery instrument or some some you know some cousin of that, and that this is an important part of the negotiations. And um, whereas uh, the IMF staff's perspective seems to be driven by the constant concern of the economists in particular about how do you create contingent sovereign debt instruments that will then save the world because once we have contingent instruments, we'll never need to do complicated sovereign debt restructuring. So their agenda is solving what they see as a market failure. Um, and maybe, I, I think I'm overstating, maybe your perspective is look as a realistic matter. These come into play only in restructurings where you're trying to help the negotiations go better. Is, is that, I, I'm wondering whether I've gotten the, the, the sort of the sides correct. Yeah, um, my
1: concern is not with the value recovery concept. It's the having it, trying to force it into a separately tradable instrument. A value recovery concept in, a, in an instrument, such as uh, the, let me give you an example, the, the Bosnia GDP Performance Bond. That's, that's a value recovery instrument, but it's not the kind that I'm talking about in the paper because the value recovery concept is embedded in the bond itself. And just to take a second on how that worked, uh, because Bosnia was obviously devastated by uh, the Balkan conflict, uh, coupled with the fact that it was part of a command economy system which no longer existed. It had every strike against it. Uh, So what do you do? With the fact that it inherited its portion of the former Yugoslav debt, uh, and the answer in that restructuring was to create two instruments. One, what we uh, call a flurb, front-loaded interest reduction bond, which has a, as a, a value, a, a set value recovery, concept embedded in it. In that, uh, you got a higher. Uh, interest rate over a period of let's say five years and then then it trades like a normal bond. And the other uh, was a GDP performance bond. And that uh, bond, uh, which by the way, has been very greatly misunderstood uh, in the the market and in in the academic literature, is a bond that has uh, had an off to on switch if GDP per capita hit a trigger level in a two-year period within a defined scope of years. The theory being, if uh, Bosnia had recuperated to a certain extent uh, in its uh, economic development, it would then be able to support that bond. And so the, the switch uh, would turn from off to on, and it if it turned on, that value recovery mechanism disappeared and it became a conventional bond. If the trigger was never hit, then that bond uh, would, would never go live and would just uh, disappear because there had been an ample period of time for uh, the recovery, and it was just not going to happen uh, in, a, in, a, in a suitable period. That kind of value recovery... Embedded in the, the 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 bond itself is highly valuable. It's when you strip it out uh, into a separate uh, tradable instrument with you know its own ISIN whatever um, that it starts trading all over the map. Nobody knows how to value it. There you know I think that the Ukraine GDP warrant was valued somewhere between two cents and ten cents. You know which is a huge huge uh, variation. It's just a very inefficient uh, type of instrument, uh, which in that case may be a very, very expensive intru- instrument for the country because after a certain period it becomes uncapped. So I, I just don't see that that kind of instrument uh, should be encouraged as a policy matter.
2: So, Mark, as one of the, and maybe I'll, I'll ask one more question before break uh, as a way of setting up. Um, a discussion of, of history, which is one of the topics we were excited to, to talk to you about. But um, maybe as a lead into that, one of the examples that you give in your paper, uh, seemingly as a positive example of how a value recovery instrument could be designed in a way that was slightly more complex and certainly tailored to the transaction. But the examples from the the Dawes plan, the sort of first, as I think of it, kind of systematic attempt to resolve the tensions created by both inter-allied war debt and German reparations. And so I'm wondering if um, as we go into break, you can tell us a little bit about that example and why you think it's still relevant today.
1: Yeah, uh, and by the way, the Dawes plan also had a, a, a downside contingency plan, so it had a it had a contingency concept and a value recovery concept. Um, so a, a minus and a plus. The reason I think that uh, that Dawes formulation is interesting is because uh, there are many countries that don't are not a single commodity exporter like oil, but that for whom uh, GDP may be uh, too hard to validate as as a basis for an instrument. Whereas if you could have certain specific markers of economic improvement that are not a single commodity on the one end of one bookend, but uh, they're not a full-blown GDP on the other bookend, but you have, and in the case of Dawes, they had six markers of improvement. Then uh, you have a, a verifiable, much more verifiable formula, uh, which would nevertheless serve to demonstrate uh, debt service capacity. So that's, that's the idea and why it, it could still be relevant uh, today.
2: Well, thank you so much. Let's take a really quick break and uh, we'll be back in just a second. Maybe I can start our the second half of the episode with a a very different question, although one that that follows on to our discussion of the Dawes plan, which is a question about history. We've been asking our students in our our joint sovereign debt class to think a lot about um, historical episodes in sovereign debt markets for the first part of our semester and and they've been, They've been doing a really nice job. They've been, I think, pretty enthusiastic about it, but it has taken them some time, I think, to appreciate why um, a knowledge of these historical episodes matters. And so we were hoping we could ask you whether, I guess, but also why history and a knowledge of the history of sovereign debt markets, um, among other things, mattered to you as a as a lawyer throughout your practice
1: okay well i think you can learn a lot from the study of history and uh, of uh sovereign debt and in particular what has interested me is are there patterns across countries and time frames that uh, suggest a road map for countries to develop in in conditions of extreme circumstances. And certainly history has shown us that there are a number of those. I mean, I uh, looked at some depth at three cases. The United States, just after the Revolutionary War. uh, Germany, after World War I, we've already talked about, and Bosnia after the... uh, uh, the Balkan crisis which we've already adverted to briefly. How do those crisis cases uh, teach us, teach us? And uh, talk about crisis I and mean, the United States had a horrendous debt overhang, uh, something like 46 times its uh, export revenues. Uh, Germany's post-World War One. Economy has been widely reported on, uh, uh, you know, runaway hyperinflation. Uh, Bosnia, I already mentioned, uh, devastated economy. All of them had significant uh, debt to deal with, notwithstanding these catastrophic uh, situations. What are the common elements that we find that, because all of them have managed to work out? And obviously, The United States made a remarkable turnaround from essentially uh, bankrupt to highly creditworthy. Uh, And that creditworthiness has stayed with us and has been one of our great legacies. Uh, And the the lesson there, just to take the United States, the lesson there is when you have a problem that that is that deep, you have to conceive of Uh, a organic restructuring of the country before you even talk about what do I do about the debt. I mean, in my scheme of analysis here, coming to the debt plan is, is the fifth stage. And just to tick off the different stages, the first stage is realize that the solution is going to take time and you have to buy the time to do it and not race to try to solve the problem quickly and you know i mentioned earlier uh, ukraine racing i can't speak to that too closely because i don't know the case well enough but uh racing to solve a problem that is this deep is is not advised by the time that you need Uh, the, the second point is uh the likelihood that fundamental adjustments are going to be needed in the organic shape of the of the government. In the United States, we needed a new constitution that gave us a more fiscal coherency. Um, the Articles of Confederation were the least likely to produce a fiscally sound uh, country. We needed a new constitution. We needed a new central bank. Um, we needed to regularize the relationships between the federal government and the states.
0: Mark, um, since since we've gone uh, down the historical path to the formation of the US, I, I wanna take us to the question that we're spending a lot of time in our class this term, which is, the historical context of the Haitian independence debt, which is close in time to some of the uh, matters that you brought up with the US and also involves a situation in which this particular debt imposed a massive debt overhang on a new country and a debt overhang that arguably it never Uh, was able to get out of. But I don't want to um, ask you specifically about Haiti because that's not what you have been working on. But in our conversations, I know that you know a lot about a couple of topics, historical topics that are very related. And two of them that I'd love it if you would be so kind as to connect to the Haiti situation are uh, the Louisiana Purchase, which involved some of the same players, uh, and gunboat diplomacy during that period, since the most iconic images of the Haitian debt negotiations in 1825 are those uh, from French painters where you have the French gunboats in the harbor pointing their guns at the Haitian shore. Okay, let me, uh, I'll take them in the the order asked.
1: The the Louisiana Purchase and the Haiti story are integrally linked uh, in this way. Uh, Napoleon had the concept of reinstating Haiti as a, a source of important cash blows for his uh, military involvements in Europe. To accomplish this, he sent his brother-in-law, Leclerc, to uh, reconquer Haiti. That uh, military operation turned into a disaster, and his brother-in-law was uh, killed, or died, I guess, of, of disease. His ships Warships were tied up in Haiti, and he had to hire another group of ships in order to go to New Orleans to start the period of administrative takeover of the Louisiana territory from Spain, which then controlled it under treaty. Uh, the, there was a freak weather occurrence in, uh, in the Netherlands, and the, the harbors froze. For an extraordinary period of time. He couldn't get the ships out of it. He came to the view that both on practical and, if you will, metaphysical grounds, I have to... This I'm out of here. I, this is not going to... My strategy is not going to work. The strategy of owning uh, the Louisiana Territory to provide low-cost uh, nourishment to Haiti so that it could concentrate on high-value export products. That's not going to happen because I didn't take over Haiti, and my ships are frozen in the Netherlands. I can't administratively take over uh, the Louisiana territory, so I have to, I'm going to leave, I'm going to sell it. There may also have been, in the back of his mind, the concern that he might not always have something to sell, because uh, the United States was menacing, taking it over by force, because uh, the New Orleans harbor had been blocked for reasons we uh, too detailed to go into now. But so there was a possibility that the U.S. and certainly Hamilton and others were of the view that it ought to be taken over militarily, and then. Uh, uh, the United States would be in a much better bargaining position. So sell it, he did, and that was it was a, actually a very interesting transaction
2: from the point of view of sovereign finance. Uh, can, can, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I, so I uh, learned only recently, or at least I think I have learned. I still know relatively little about the this time, but this was the to finance the transaction. This was the first international bond issued by the United States. Is that right?
1: I think that's right. And um, uh, actually, it we were talking earlier about the establishment of creditworthiness. The successful payment of those bonds contributed a great deal. To the image of the United States as a creditworthy um, country. What's interesting to me and, uh, about that bond issue is, uh, if today's disclosure requirements and today's sanctions uh, uh, rules applied, would that bond offering ever have taken place? The the bond offering itself had a prospectus that was like a page or a page and a half long and it consisted solely of details about how you get paid on the bonds. Had our disclosure rules and sanctions rules applied, it would have said something like, well, wait a second, the underwriters, which were Barings and Hope and Company, Barings is situated in London, as we know, uh, the proceeds of the bond offering were to pay Napoleon so that he could attack England. Uh, And in fact, the foreign minister of England called up Bering and said, well, just a second, you know, I'm not sure you should be doing this. Um, You know, I think modern modern sanctions regimes would have stopped at coal right there. Uh, The disclosure uh, would have had risk factors a mile long, including that France didn't really own yet territory that they were selling, that Napoleon didn't bother to get the uh, adequate approvals to sell it, uh, that the United States, uh, Jefferson thought it was very likely unconstitutional uh, to buy it without a constitutional amendment, which he'd already drafted, put in his pocket when it uh, became advantageous uh, to do so, and on and on in in that vein. So it's a very interesting uh, Exercise in, in thinking: Do our disclosure rules really tell people what they uh, need to know about an important transaction? Like yeah, this? I
2: mean that's one of the things I've been struck with looking at old prospectuses is just how limited the information was about everything from risk factors, and eventually risk factor risk factor types of language begins to appear. But you know these early prospectuses there was no disclosure of risk factors and certainly no disclosure of the legal terms of the bonds to the extent there were any. that, that information seems to have started being viewed as valuable much much later. So yeah it's, I, I have um, only seen images of the prospectus but it looked really really scanty.
1: The, the other prospectus to put to one to side by side with with the Louisiana purchase bond prospectus would be the prospectus issued in connection with the bond issuance that financed the first indemnity payment for Haiti, which was bought by two to 3,000 bondholders in Paris. And that was a prospectus that actually had disclosure in it, but the disclosure was to the effect that Haiti was a prosperous, stable country, with uh, strong international reserves and was in a, pa- in a parallel with the United States, another emerging uh, democracy. Um, and that prospectus failed to say two key things. One, the United States had already you know, successfully servicing its Revolutionary War debt, its Louisiana Purchase debt, its War of 1812 debt. They also failed to clarify the use of the proceeds. Which was to uh, to pay the plantation owners. And when the bondholders ultimately found that out, there was a huge hue and cry in Paris.
0: It was a total mess. So that's Mark, this is fascinating. And our students have been asking us a lot about that, so I'm so glad uh, you brought this up. And uh, you know, one of the questions that they have asked, and sometimes uh, sort of, been um, particularly interested in was the responsibility of the French government uh, for engineering uh, these debts, uh, particularly the Haitian indemnity debt. And, um, you know, France has this, well, the other historical incident where France misleads investors Uh, that comes to mind immediately has to do with uh, the czarist bonds where uh, the French government was complicit in sort of misleading French citizens to buy uh, bonds of of a government that had neither obtained proper approvals for some of the issuances, nor was in the kind of stable situation that investors would have wanted. Uh, But you know, this question of government responsibility for historical ills, I'm guessing is one that in your practice in when you actually advise real governments, you must have come across and how, how do you deal with it? It's a, you actually, you worked in the Caribbean for uh, countries that had had imperial powers exploit them did you ever get this kind of question, and how do you handle it? No, uh, not specifically. and
1: you know I think in the case of Haiti, I've been trying to figure out who who was responsible for this the bond offering and who was responsible for this disclosure? You know I think obviously the the French government had a responsibility I'm sure they were highly pressured by the, I'm gonna call them colonists or plantation owners. Uh, interestingly, at the same time that that was going on, there was a, another uh, ordinance to the same effect of indemnification that related to property taken in the French Revolution. So from the perspective of the the uh, French government, there, They have this initiative that the property taken in their own revolution needs to be indemnified against. But now we have uh, this parallel revolution. We can't let that go. So they have to come up with uh, a parallel solution. So they came up with this ordinance. And by the way, I've seen the math by which they uh, come up with the price uh, to be paid for the ordinance. And then uh, the bankers step in, and the bankers say, OK, we're going to issue a bono. So what role the the French government itself had and what role the bankers had is very hard uh, to sort out. Clearly, clearly the government uh, was attempting to do something for the planters, just as they were attempting to do something for the people who lost property in 1789. But then uh, they took the view, the French government said, well, look, we're not getting the money from this. And in fact, the, the 1826 statute made it very clear, not no part of the money, the proceeds of uh, this indemnity would go to the French government. This is now a banker and private sector issue. So uh, I'm, it's not clear that the French government had a hand in this it sort of took on a life of its own uh, and various underwriters vying to, to do the job with a huge fee. And then uh, they sold the bonds uh, and and recouped the amount of the of the fee. So it's, it's hard to say that, you know, if I were representing the French government, would we have been called upon to draft such a prospectus? Obviously, we would not have been party to something that was uh misleading in that respect and I can't recall a a case where we were but somebody somebody set about to write a you know a a fiction and uh and that backfired massively
2: well mark thank you so much for taking the time to to join us today um I know me too and I were sort of excited uh finally get to have you have you on there's probably two or three more podcasts that we could do um to talk about all kinds of subjects but we were really really happy to get uh get time on your schedule and thank you so much for for uh, being willing to come join us
1: thank you very much